Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. For the next six weeks, we'll be looking at the eight visions that are given to Zechariah. Last time, we did an overview to see how they all fit together, and now we're going to fill in another layer, go back into some of those details. So let's begin with the text. Hear the word of the Lord. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered, The angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. The angel who talked with me said to me, cry out. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? He said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that one raised, no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Father, as we open your word, we pray that your spirit would illuminate it to us, that you would shine light in our darkness and help us to see the meaning of these words to us. Christ's name we pray. Amen. So those are the first two visions that Zechariah sees in this night of visions. And the two go together. The second vision is the shortest of all the visions, and it really follows immediately on the heels of the first. And that's why we're looking at the two of them together. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment what it would have been like to be Zechariah on that night. You don't have to literally close your eyes, although you can if you want. And many people during my sermons do. But imagine 
opening your eyes in the darkness. And as you open them, you look and you see a man mounted on a horse in the shadows. And as you look further, you see more detail. You see a cluster of myrtles around him, encompassing him. And beyond him, you see more horsemen coming, troops of horsemen with them, a whole assembly of horsemen, and realize who they are, that these are the angelic host who have come and gathered in this place. And they've come after having completed a mission. They've been on patrol. And now they're here to report on what they've seen. And you have to wonder, what are they going to say? As they've gone out over creation and looked, what report will they bring back? And the horsemen bring back a report that the earth is at rest. You realize you have standing next to you an angel, but in this dreamlike vision, that's not such a weird thing. Zechariah doesn't describe it as strange that suddenly there was an angel just happens to be there. This angel who's talking to me, a guide to explain things. And also another angel, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, the first writer that we encounter, who is the commander of this angelic host. And when he hears the report, he doesn't just dismiss the soldiers. When he hears the report of rest, he turns to the father, to Yahweh, and he cries out. He cries out, interceding for mercy. How long, he asks, how long will there be no mercy on Jerusalem and Judah? And then Yahweh answers him. He answers him in three parts. He gives him kind of three oracles in response, which are reported through the angel to Zechariah and to us. And the father speaks first of his anger at the nations. Then he speaks of his return to his people. Then he talks about a promise of a better covenant, a better kingdom that is to come. And then you look up and you see horns coming. Four horns are approaching. And the horns are the nations that we've just been told God is angry at. And then there are four craftsmen who come along to undermine those horns to undermine those nations. They come as instruments of God's anger to punish those that God is angry about. Those are the first two visions that Zechariah sees. And if you stop there for a moment and just process what has been seen, what you've witnessed, I mean, what would you come away with when you come out of that dream, that vision? What, what would you be telling yourself? I mean, for one thing, you'd, you'd realize there's no rest for the wicked. Right? The nations may seem to be at peace and at rest. They may seem to be happy with what they've done, and it all worked out for them. But the reality is there will be no rest because God will do justice, because God will punish their misdeeds. But also, if you'd seen those visions, not only would you be assured that there's no rest for the wicked, but you'd also be assured that there will be rest for God's people, that there will be rest. There will be comfort. There will be prosperity and blessing in the new Jerusalem where God dwells with his people. That's the opening salvo of this series of visions that Zechariah receives. And our plan this morning, as we look at those visions, is first to look at the two visions together and think about the significance of the details that we've just read, 
And then also ask the question, once we've done that, how should these visions shape our vision of the world to come? So first, let's take a look at the visions and what they mean. There's an interesting setting in the first vision that reveals itself layer by layer. You kind of, the identity of the people involved comes into focus little by little. In our translation, which is uh, billed as essentially literal, this reads a little more confusingly than it would in a, in a more dynamic translation where they clean up those difficulties for you. If you read this in a more uh, kind of paraphrasy translation, it's always really clear that the man standing in the myrtles is standing on a horse. It's just the horse is at rest that the other horses have riders on them, which is why we're talking about four horsemen and not just four horses or a guy standing and four horses around him or anything like that. So, so you have to do a little bit of work with the more literal translation to get the picture into focus. So let's do that work for just a moment. So you get a flavor for what's being said here. You'll notice in verse seven, in these introductory words, we get the date that we've talked about before February 15th, 519 BC is the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat in the second year of Darius. But there's something interesting even there. The the month of Shabbat is the 11th month in the Hebrew calendar. But it's interesting. This is the first time that that word is used to describe that month. And there's a reason for it. Even though that's the name on the Jewish calendar, it's a name that was derived from Akkadian or from Babylonian, the place of their captivity. In Arabic, it's the same word, basically, and it comes from the same source, which is interesting. The calendar that these people observe has been affected in its language by their captivity. And they're now referring to this month using this word that they got from the Babylonians. But what's interesting, though, in the Hebrew, and you'll find this in Zechariah a number of times, these little word plays where where words that sound very similar are used together. Well, you don't need to know Hebrew to know what word Shabbat sounds like, right? Sounds like Sabbath. In Hebrew, it sounds very, very similar, the two words. And Sabbath means rest. And so in the month that is named by a word that sounds a lot like rest, The visions speak about rest and the question of which rest is real, which rest will last. Now, as you see the rest that's reported by the horsemen, this is the rest of the nations, and this is not a true rest as we will see. But first, let's look at those horsemen a little bit. So there's various colors of horse that are reported. So sorrel is a kind of Uh, Red, brown, white is white. Red is interesting, though, because you might be tempted to think, well, these must be mystical horses because their color is red. But but apparently in Hebrew, red horses are what we would say those are dark brown horses. So these are not actually unusual colors for horses. The horses don't have sort of mystical, unnatural coloring. These are a, a normal range of colors for horses, although some people suggest they do. If you think about the colors together, they do have kind of the suggestion of flame to them that might make you think of chariots of fire from 2 Kings 6.17. 
Commentators also point out that when you see this reference to horses, instead of thinking of individual horses, you might think of troops of horses. So the idea is that this is a host that is gathered. It's not just a a group of horsemen. It's a group of horsemen who represent the angelic host as well. So why four? Why are there four horsemen? You know, your book of Revelation, you're immediately thinking of the four horsemen of the apocalypse and all of the symbolism that goes with them. But here it's a little bit different. The number four is significant, but not for the reasons you might think. To understand why there's four horsemen and then later four horns and four craftsmen, you have to think about the points on the compass or to use an anachronistic expression, the four corners of the earth. To send out horsemen, scouts over all the earth, you send them, you know, to the four corners of the earth, to the four points of the compass. So to have four going out or four coming back in suggests wholeness. Everything is covered. Everything has been surveyed. And that's the significance of there being four. And why are they in a glen? What's the significance of Glen? That's interesting because this word translated Glen, it's the only occurrence of this Hebrew word in the Old Testament. And it's variously interpreted. Some people say Glen, some will translate it as a ravine or a basin or a hollow. Some will translate it as in the depths with lots of uh, shadow and, and, and that sort of thing. Sometimes the way it's translated makes it sound like a really ominous place. And then other times, like Glen, that sounds, we're, we're like in the Scottish Highlands or something. It sounds really fun. Uh, but the reality is we're not really sure. It, it may have some profound significance, or it may just be uh, like a, meant to conjure the idea of, of the Kidron Valley outside of Jerusalem, a kind of a depression there near Jerusalem, which would be reinforced by the myrtles. So the myrtles... Uh, I didn't know this, but myrtles are actually shrubs that just look like trees. They're kind of horseman height. Uh, Myrtle is one of the woods that God commands or permits to be used in the Feast of Tabernacles. When you're building your tabernacle to live in for seven days, one of the woods you can build it out of is myrtle. And so the myrtle has uh, a symbolic meaning in scripture. It's often used in passages that are meant to describe the messianic age that is to come, the fertility, the luxuriance of the messianic age. It's an evergreen. So it's always, you know, in season, one commentator calls the myrtles, the paradise trees in the wilderness. If you think about that, you think about tabernacling, in a kind of glen, it would make sense to think of this as a sort of representation of uh, Jerusalem and its environment, something like that. Only you're seeing it from the perspective of heavenly hosts rather than the physical buildings we're accustomed to. And we could go on and on with, with these sort of speculations about what the various symbols mean. But what's interesting is that when Zechariah asks the angel, the meaning of everything, the angel doesn't do this. The angel doesn't say, well, here's what you need to know about the colors of the horses. And here's what you need to know about myrtles and why we chose myrtles, not pines for this vision, that sort of thing. It's, it's deeply symbolic. Let me explain. That's not the approach of the angel. The angel gives him kind of an essential vision, an essential explanation. So one commentary, not, not the one I've recommended, but, but a different one that I'll mention later on down the line, says that, that we can learn from the angel's example 
says, it must be understood that here Zechariah is giving the essential message of the vision, sheds no light at all on the significance of the various colors of horse or the particular variety of tree. And that suggests these details are not important. They're not essential to understanding the vision. So we stand back and inquire after the clear import of each vision as a whole, rather than seeking significance in every minor detail. And that's going to be our approach as well. I'm going to recommend to you some resources where if you really want to get into speculation about what everything could mean, where you can find good speculation about those things. But for the most part, I don't want to get, I don't want to lose the forest for the trees, so to speak. I want to be sure that we get the import of what's happening here. And to do that, we have to really look at the action that takes place in the vision. So first there's a report from the horseman. The horsemen say in verse 11, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. And once they do this, the angel of Yahweh speaks and we recognize that the, this foremost of these horsemen is their commander. The angel of Yahweh is, is the messianic angel of the presence. And we talked about this last time, a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. Here we see him as the chief of the horsemen, that means he's the leader of the angelic host. Might remind you of another pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in a similar fashion. Right? If you go back to the book of Joshua, remember in Joshua chapter 5, as Joshua is preparing for his great battle at Jericho, and he's off on his own, he's confronted by someone, and he asks, are you on their side or our side? The guy replies, neither. I've come as the commander of, of the armies of the Lord of hosts. Same guy. This is the angel of Yahweh making an appearance here as well. And his task is the same here as it was in Joshua's day. He's here to bring God's judgment on the hostile powers of the world so that he can make a place for the kingdom of God's people, the kingdom of the saints. That's what he's doing here. But the way he does it is not through brute strength. The way he does it is through intercession, right? He intercedes on behalf of the people. He says, Oh Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years. So he intercedes just as Christ intercedes for us today. We see that this intercession is an essential part of the messianic role. How long he asks. And that question should remind you as well, the question of the saints in the book of revelation in chapter six, verse 10, they cry out their voices, cry out asking God, how long? And then God answers here. And as I said, he gives us three answers, three oracles. Now, the reason we divide them into three is because they're kind of introduced with this, uh, thus says the Lord, or, or cry out and say this. So even though it, it comes in kind of one block of text, we have those markers that indicate there are divisions. So the first oracle is about Yahweh's wrath. It's about his anger at the nations. So, so the angel talked with me and said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts. I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. While I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. So God still loves his people. 
He's jealous for them. He is eager for their good, despite the exile that they've endured. They're being assured now, I'm jealous for you. I haven't abandoned you. But he is angry at the nations who defeated them and destroyed them, which is interesting because those nations were, were raised by God as instruments of judgment to punish the unfaithfulness of his people. But this is one of those instances where we see the complexity of the workings of God. So they're raised up by God to do this thing, but they're culpable for the wrong that they do. Those things go together. Um, they ought to, in, in humbling the people of God, they ought to have respected God himself. They ought to have acted differently than they did. So while they brought punishment, they are also guilty for the sins that they committed during this time. So there will be judgment. The second oracle starts in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, again, a new tag introducing the second oracle. I've returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. There's an offer of mercy here. God is returning to his people. God is showing mercy to the penitent. That's gospel grace that God is offering to his people. Not only that, he's establishing his presence, his house among his people. His dwelling place will be with his people. And that's an assurance, not only of his presence, but of his goodness. He also promises to rebuild that things will be rebuilt. There will be a flourishing. That's the significance of the measuring line, which will come back in the third vision. The measuring line is about reconstruction. It's about uh, building up the city. In the third Oracle verse 17 cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again, choose Jerusalem. So the way that, that prosperity is pictured is overflowing cities to a people who are in a city that must have seemed deserted, a, a ruined, underpopulated. Suddenly there's a vision of a city bursting at its seams filled with prosperity, with blessing. God is promising that when he is dwelling with his people, his people will prosper and they will be comforted. Well, again, choose Jerusalem, he says. And that choosing is significant because it's a reminder of God's covenant love, his electing love, showing that this new covenant that God is talking about is in continuity with the one that went before. He again emphasizes, I'm not starting over. It's not that, that I failed in my first plan and now I've come up with an exciting new plan that's guaranteed to work. It's the same plan. It's all part of God's plan together. This opening vision, Meredith Klein says, is to be understood as a prophetic picture of the perfecting of the kingdom under the new covenant with its better promises and its better country. So here in the vision, we see God tipping his hand, so to speak, at all the good things this better covenant will bring. And immediately afterwards, we see this this justice begin. We see God acting on the anger that the Oracle proclaims when he sends his four craftsmen to undermine the four horns. Now we talked about this last week, but horns symbolize strength. When you think of a horn being lifted up, 
in scripture, think literally about an animal with a horn. Uh, You choose your animal. I think of rhinos because rhinos, when they gore you, I mean, not firsthand experience, but, but uh, I imagine the way it works is they kind of tuck down and then they, they get that little curved horn in your guts and then they lift up, they, they lift up their horns and, and you are lifted up in the process by the strength of the animal. Right? That symbol of strength, that, that idea that here's something that could knock me over, that could eviscerate me, that could destroy me, is the significance of, of horns. So when you hear that, don't just think, you know, horns being blown, but think horns, you know, stabbing people and showing the strength of the animals who possess them. Those are the nations. They're strong. The nations that overcame uh, Israel are strong in human terms, and they are objects of God's anger. Now, again, there's four of them because this is an all-encompassing definition. You might think, shouldn't there just be two? Shouldn't there be Assyria and Babylon? Isn't it too complicated to add more? But the point is all of the nations that have stood up to and will stand up to, will defeat, destroy, attack the people of God are included in this vision. And the craftsmen, when they're sent, the significance of what craftsmen is, it's, it's, it's enough to undermine all of the horns. Like there's a craftsman for every horn. Now, these craftsmen, sometimes the word is translated as blacksmiths, but you get the idea that they're builders. And that gives you an interesting sense of how evil is overcome. It's overcome here by, by, by building. It reminds me a little bit of siege warfare. You're strong. You have these strong, thick walls. You think that you can escape destruction by hiding behind those walls. And then some craftsmen come along, not soldiers necessarily. Maybe they're not carrying swords or anything like that. They've got tools, but they start building uh, trenches, mines under your walls. They start building siege towers next to your walls. And pretty soon your strength doesn't feel very strong because people are out building you. They're out creating you. They're undermining your strength through their creative work, through their contribution. Now, the implication here is this. Outside the favor of God, we are constantly being undermined, constantly being unraveled. To say there's no rest for the wicked is just to acknowledge that God is the creator and sustainer of all things. And when we are subject to God's wrath, it's as if there's forces working from within to tear us down, but to tear us down as punishments for our sins. There is truly nowhere to hide. So those are the visions. How should those visions shape our vision of what's to come? There's some things undoubtedly that the people of Israel learned from these visions, but I think we can take lessons from them as well. Lessons that we really need. Uh, first of all, simply put, God knows what's going on. God knows what's going on in a vision where God sends his angelic host, his horsemen over the world to gather intelligence. The implication is there's nothing happening that is outside the power of God. Nothing is beyond his knowledge or his control. God's power knows no boundaries. We don't see his hand. We don't always understand the way that he's working, but he's working. 
Now, we are often consumed by fear and anxiety because we don't know what's happening. We don't know how it's going to turn out. We don't know if, if the next week or the next year is going to be good or it's going to be the worst week or worst year of our lives. And if you start thinking about that, it can fill you with dread. But God knows what is happening and is in control. We tell ourselves sometimes that there are evil forces at work against us, that that bad people are controlling the circumstances of our lives. It is true that the circumstances of our lives are being controlled by a powerful interest. But that interest is God. He is the one who is in control, which is why the whole story of his plan of redemption is sometimes called a divine conspiracy. Controlling hand is God's, and if he is in control, then our fear and our anxiety are not just pointless, but counterproductive. Because the energy that you spend on fear, on worry, for, for where the next paycheck will come from, for, for what's going to happen in the news, that sort of thing, that's energy that was not invested in the kingdom. That's energy that could have been used in order to glorify God and to to extend the boundaries of his grace. But instead, it went into fear and anxiety because we were acting as if God doesn't know what's going on and isn't in control. So we need to learn that. We also need to learn, as the sermon title suggests, that there is no rest for the wicked. Despite the apparent peace of the nations, God will execute judgment. God will right wrong. True rest doesn't come with getting away with the bad things that you've done. True rest comes from God's favor and God's judgment unravels us from the inside. There are plenty of people who do bad things and get away with it, right? There are plenty of people who who do bad things and get ahead as a result. And when you look at that, it's easy to think that there will be no reckoning, that there will be no judgment, that there's no uh, reward for righteousness and no punishment for sin. You can, like the horseman, scan the world and say to yourself, well, it seems like they're all at rest. Seems like everything is going well for those who reject God. But that rest isn't real and it isn't final. It's more like a calm before the storm because there is no rest for the wicked. If it's true, as the Apostle Paul quotes, that in him we live and move and have our being, then being apart from him is our undoing as human beings. Which is why the war inside you, the conflict, the struggle within is a call to repentance. And it's only then that you can rest. Another lesson here that comes from the angel of Yahweh is this. Jesus is your megaphone. Jesus is your megaphone. We don't talk enough about the intercessory role of Jesus, not only in his ministry on earth, but in his ministry now. But Jesus currently, right now, intercedes for you with the Father, which means that if you think that you're alone, that you have no one to take up your case, no one to represent you, no one to speak for you, the fact is you're wrong. Because you have the commander of the hosts of the Lord making intercession for you, taking your name on his lips, testifying for you and and urging good 
on your behalf. And if the angel of the messianic presence is crying out to God and saying, how long on your behalf, then you know that the sound of your name and your concerns is reverberating through heaven. Jesus is your megaphone. Jesus magnifies your name in the presence of the father in a way very similar to the way we magnify his name here on earth. So yeah, you're never alone, but Christ's intercession means more than that. It means you're never unrepresented. You're never not spoken up for. You're never in a situation where there's no one to take your cause as his own, because that's what Jesus does on your behalf. And then the response from Yahweh should teach us something as well. Not just that Jesus cries out on our behalf, but that the father hears the cry and he answers. He hears it and he answers and he promises mercy. He promises you communion. He promises you restoration and blessing and comfort. All of the promises that Yahweh spoke through the prophets to his people of old, he speaks to you as well. These promises are for you. There is no rest for the wicked, but there is a rest that is to come for the children of Jerusalem. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.